Sorry, I've been distracted by John eating a sausage sandwich. Is it a sausage sandwich? No, it's not. It's pesto and tomato. Oh, sorry, I've inadvertently carnivored you up. Um, but I'm not sure I'm really going anywhere with this or have an interesting point to make. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 63rd episode of Octothorpe, which is coming to you on the 4th of August 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comments on episode 61. And first up, we have Christopher J. Garcia. Chris says that Alison is right about the no awarding of categories and that it should be ahead of the ceremony instead of during the ceremony. Um, And he says that this is uh, true of Olaf's proposal and we need to do a small apology um, because Paul Mimer wrote in to remind us that it isn't just Olaf Rockney's uh, proposal, but it is also amanda wakaruk's proposal and they co-authored it so sorry to amanda and um yes that is both people uh, involved so thank you very much for writing in paul uh, we did correct it in the show notes but we didn't correct it in the audio itself although that is i mean chris's thing is slightly different that is where no award actually beats out all the nominees in the puppy years and this is more you know where there is no award not because no award was voted above everything else but because there weren't enough votes. And I don't know if we should kind of take those two separately. But at the same time, it might be it might be nice if the people who are going to get no awarded knew they were going to get no awarded before they went and sat through the whole ceremony. And also, it would have the advantage that if there was not going to be an award, you could just not award that award in the ceremony, which would potentially be quite good. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting point. And yes, you are right that they're slightly conflated. Maybe we'll see in six weeks' time. Please vote in the Hugos. Yes, please vote for a fan cast and for all of the other fan categories. It doesn't have to be for us, just for things that you like that have the word fan in them. Yeah. Actually, it's true of the others, other categories as well, you know, that are that are lower interest. You know, please vote. Yes, please vote for best novel. In case you had been planning not to, novels deserve recognition too, <laughs> listeners. Um, so, yeah, now, I know we're going to say this every time, but do please, do please vote. Chris also writes to say that he has two Roombas, uh, one of which is a prototype he got from the museum because they had already got four Roombas, so he took it home, which is a flex about as big as the time Chris told me that I was looking at the only computer which had been to the moon and also in his car. (laughs) And uh, his second Roomba he gave to his children to take apart, which I don't think I could do because I've named mine and given it googly eyes. So I'm just going to have to give it. If it, ever, if it ever breaks, it's getting like a Viking funeral, I think. I'm now attached to it. I have a Roomba called Colin. <gasps> Ooh. Do you want me to post you some googly eyes? <laughs> what, from Thailand? I'm sure there's a more local stockage to me. It's Poundland. <laughs> yeah. Poundland's like Thailand, right? <laughs> In what sense? I don't know. So, and it's very good. It's good. It's named after the robot that Ford Prefect reprograms in Mostly Harmless because it is a bumbling robot that's very friendly and goes whirr. And it hoovers up the cat litter and that's good. So hurrah, 10 out of 10 robot, wood robot again. And then we also had an email from Roman Orzanski. 
he writes in on the subject of the Whispers Constitution Clause about minimum number of votes. And then he says that a more interesting question might be the language of first publication, because at the moment, finalists need to have publication in English. Say there is a South American World Con and there is a big number of Spanish attendees. Say there's a novel published in Spanish, which has a very small English translation print run. It might gather sufficient votes to win, um, not because of the standard of the English publication, but because of the standard of the Spanish one. He then asks, if the Hugo is a world award, why does it focus on first English publication? I mean, it it, it doesn't, though, does it? There is no requirement that nominee, nominees for the Hugos need to be in English. There's only an eligibility extension that they are eligible again when they are published in an English translation. So Aha. The, there's no requirement that they actually be in English. It's just, it's, it's, never, uh, it's just never come about. I mean, it may come about in 2023 if there are sufficient voters who vote for something in a Chinese language edition. I think that is one of the more plausible scenarios, just because if they have loads of members and many of them are not reading English language science fiction. Thank you very much for that, Roman. So we had a uh, comment on Facebook in which Bridget Bradshaw says that if someone told me they were pregnant, would I tell them they needed a pee test? And that is a joke about statistics. So thank you very much, Bridget. Or pregnancy tests. One of those. It's a joke about statistics and lateral flow tests, so it definitely appeals to two-thirds of this podcast. Possibly all of this podcast. How do you feel about P-tests, Alison? Honestly, if I'm pregnant, it's going to be the least of my worries. <laughs> right, FantasyCon has been cancelled, everyone. Don't, don't go to FantasyCon, it's not happening. Oh, oh, hang on, breaking news from a week ago. It's happening again. Yeah! Okay, we should talk about this. Thank you very much to FantasyCon uh, for cancelling and then reinstating themselves in time for this episode so we can discuss the entire thing rather than discussing it in two halves because that's very useful. Um, We'd like to thank them sincerely for their very thoughtful timing. Yes, so it appears that FantasyCon, which was planned to be run uh, in September 22 in London in I think the Radisson uh, Conference Centre where Eastercom was also held, um, they announced that it had been cancelled due to lack of ticket sales. Um, there's a message uh, picked up from File 770, which says that they had sold 200 memberships when they needed 400 memberships, which would give them a large shortfall. And so they cancelled. Um, and then afterwards, there was a survey which went round, essentially saying if we didn't run FantasyCon as we were planning to, but ran, you know, a different a different style so either a one-day one or a two-day one or a virtual event would you would you attend and it seems like this got enough positive messages that actually they just reinstated FantasyCon as a slightly shorter two-day event at the same hotel on the same weekend so it's basically back i just found this whole thing quite confusing it's interesting to think about how the finances work if you only sold 200 memberships and that gives you a big shortfall but then you must be pretty confident that if you run a two-day event, you will be able to sell enough memberships to to make it viable as a two-day event without losing a load of money. And I don't know anything about FantasyCon's finances, but I wouldn't have thought running a two-day event in a hotel was that much cheaper than running a three-day event in a hotel, um, especially if you're trying to get people to book more hotel rooms. I have two thinks about this. The first thing is, yes, it doesn't. it's not a great look for a convention. I understand that the running of FantasyCon is franchised by the British Fantasy Society. So they basically say to a committee, please, please run this on our behalf and you can do what you like with the profits and, and so on. And um, 
And so there is a certain amount of this isn't quite the same group who were originally going to run it, running it. So so that might explain part of this. But I suspect what actually happened is that they went to the hotel and said, oh, we don't have enough people. Please cut us a better deal. And the hotel went, no, shan't. And so they went, OK, we'll cancel then. At which point the hotel said, as hotels would want to do, oh, wait. So my suspicion is that by announcing the cancellation, they have been able to get a better deal with the hotel including also obviously cutting the amount of hotel space they'll use because it's only a two-day event rather than a three-day event. But that would be my guess, is that, is that they've cancelled, is that, that that is what happened. And so let me just um, say something entirely unsubstantiated and with no evidence, because, uh, you know... That's what I said. <laughs> but I feel like I heard someone say that, like, in the aftermath of the cancellation, like, there was a rumour going around that the hotel had basically been like we're not going to give give you a better deal and then the council were like, well we're going away then and the hotel were like oh we were probably would have given you a better deal uh, and so maybe uh i think that tallies with what you just said that was certainly true for pascon quite a long time ago now no i i heard it recently about FantasyCon. i can't remember where i can't remember who and it might not be true listeners I had not heard this as a rumour. I have had only made it up out of my head on the basis of previous experiences of that exact process happening. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, But hotels, if somebody comes to you and says, if you don't give us a better deal, we are going to have to cancel our event, do not call their bluff. I mean, yeah, it does seem a bit strange. Um, the whole thing seems a bit strange at the moment with venues. Uh, foreshadowing for later in the podcast, listeners. What could we possibly talk about to do with venues for conventions? Hmm. The convention was only six weeks away, eight weeks away at the time. So probably if they went to the hotel and said, well, we're going to cancel the hotel, we're then like, oh, well, actually, we can't get anything else in here at that time. You know, it's out of school holidays, so there's not going to be as many people wanting to stay in a Heathrow hotel. Yeah, so they probably, they may have been inclined to say, actually... How about we give you a reduced price for a reduced amount of space or something similar? But we don't know. It makes a lot of sense, I think. So who's going to FantasyCon? I might be at FantasyCon. I think it would be great if I was at FantasyCon. I confess I was not really planning to go and the kerfuffle has not really uh, affected that in any way. I do wonder to what extent a convention cancelling and then reconstituting itself affects people's likelihood of going i can't imagine it's helpful but it might not be a very big negative effect but i don't know if you you know if you're planning to go to fantasy con right in if you were planning to and you're not now right in if you weren't planning to and you are now right in or if you just think things right in tell us what, what you, you reckon, reckon? It, it might make a difference because there might be people who are on the fence about it but then if it's like oh well actually we're in difficulties if we don't get some more people this event won't run they might decide actually yeah okay i'll go along even if it's just for a day I mean, I'm not going because it's two weeks after Worldcon and thousands of miles away. So, yeah, I mean, I I do think you have a better excuse. I have a pretty good excuse. Yeah, it is not unlikely that I will be there for various reasons, but partly, but I might well be commuting, which to Heathrow is a pain. I mean, people who think that London is quite small, it's quite a long journey from here to Heathrow because it's on the di- exact diametric opposite side of London to me. So yeah, FantasyCon. Hopefully, it'll be great. Do we know, I think the committee has changed, right? Do we know what's happened to the committee? Who's on it now and who is not? Don't know. I do in general find it very difficult to know what's happening with FantasyCon whenever I want to know. 
when I was looking up fantasy con stuff for the podcast last year, it was almost impossible to find out like concrete information, and it wasn't helped by the fact they had two different websites, and it was all very confusing. So I do, I do sort of wish they were a bit uh, more on the ball with that. As it happens, the FantasyCon website currently still says that FantasyCon isn't being run, and they, and they should probably fix that because uh, it is. It's got a link to an alternative, but it, it does appear that people who would who had joined FantasyCon will get a refund and then have to join the new one. Yeah. But also, if you go on fantasycon.org, it says it's cancelled and there's news about what might happen here. And then when you click through to what might happen, it's like, oh, it's running. And it's like, but you, you might want to mention that on the website. Click here for the rescheduled fantasycon. It's very strange. I don't understand. I have something that's definitely for podcasts to say about this, which is that if I was running a convention and was worried that I didn't have enough members and needed to get a lot more members, then my first course of action would be to make sure that all of my comms messages were lined up and saying the same thing and made it very easy for people to find out about the convention and join. And my second course of action would be to do a load of social media posts about how marvellous the convention was going to be and how it might be a really good idea to come along because you would be missing something if you didn't. And as far as I can see, FantasyCon did not do either of those things. No, it's very strange. I don't quite understand why but i'm sure it'll be a great convention and let us know if you're going listeners the clark award shortlist has come out the finalists for the clark award in 2022 are deep wheel orcadia by harry josephine giles uh, clara and the sun by kazuo ishiguro uh, a Desolation Called Peace by Arcadia Martin, A River Called Time by Corticia Newland, Wurgen, The Alien Love War by Mercuria D. Rivera, and Skyward Inn by Aaliyah Whiteley. Um, I've read one of these, uh, which is the one that we mentioned in the last episode. I have not read any of the others, but I have bought three of them, and two of the others are available in my library. So after the Giant Stacker Hugo reading, I'll have a fair crack. Deep Wheel Orcadia by Harry Josephine Giles is very interesting because it's written in Giles's native dialect, which is um, the Orkney language. I think the book is actually presented in Orkney and in English so that you can read it as a parallel text. Oh, well, that's really cool. And I think that is a first for the Clark Award, and that's quite exciting. It's probably the first science fiction book to be published by a major publisher in in the Orkney language, and I I do speak Scots reasonably well, having lived in Scotland for four years, and um, I'm quite looking forward to this. Nice. I had not appreciated that. That is good knowledge. Thank you very much, Alison. Yeah, I have seen. I haven't got Deep Wheel Orcadia, but I have seen pictures of it, and yeah, I think it is presented in both languages, which is quite interesting, and I look forward to seeing how that works on my Kindle. Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Oh, oh, hang on. Is this one of the ones I bought? Yeah, I think I think this is one that I've got. It is. I have got it. How does it work? Oh, it's just the Orkney and then the English. So like passage in Orkney, passage in English. Lots of little nice pictures separating them. Quite nice. Also, I will say, I assume this isn't a problem with my ebook, <laughs> which is always an interesting sentence, right? Like, is this how it's supposed to be or is it a mistake? Because I have been wrong about that in books before. I've been like, oh, this is very artistic. And there's like, no, you had a misprinted copy, John, what are you doing? <laughs> but it does like, it has the word skilled, wise, magical, cautious, 
or one word, and it has the word jut thrust and the word tap chap takes. And I assume these are these are in the English segments. So I assume these are artistic choices and not just like the ebook has the spaces in the wrong places. I don't know. If anyone's got the physical copy, please let me know. Yeah, that is correct. There is a review of this book in The Scotsman that says canny is translated as skilled, wise, magical, cautious. And I would translate canny as canny. But then apparently I use big words. Yeah, like skilled, wise, magical, cautious. I would translate canny as canny. Uh, I didn't know that was particularly Scots because it's all over Newcastle. So, yeah. Yeah, you're pretty close to Scotland, aren't you? Yeah, but we're not in it. Got a big wall to keep them out, you know. Very important. <laughs> and how well is that wall working out for you? So I've bought Deep Wheel Arcadia, Skyward Inn and Wurgen the Alien Love War. I've already read the Martine and the other two, uh, which are A River Called Time and Clara and the Sun, are, I believe, available from my library. So I will get them out from there. So that might be a spoiler for a future filler episode of Oxthorpe. <laughs> we'll have to see how many... How much people like our previous filler episode first, because we on which we have had no feedback. Yeah, no locks. No locks whatsoever. It has been a solid twelve hours since I dropped that episode. So it looks like a good looks like a good roster, I think. Always exciting when it's mostly books I have no idea about, because, you know, more books. And also books I had heard vanishingly little buzz about. Like most of the Hugos I was like peripherally aware of, but the Clarks are like Yeah, I had not really. It's just a sign I'm not plugged in enough, maybe. Well, I think that's the nice thing about The Clark, is that it usually picks some books I've heard of and then some completely left-field choices. And some of them are absolute genius and some of them are absolute nonsense. So I I always look forward to... But I do always look forward to reading the shortlist in in order to see which way they've gone gone this year. I think there are two reasons for that. And one of them is is excellent and delicious. Well, they're both good, really. The first is that the Clark judges actually read all the books. So if a book is very good, but it has almost zero marketing budget, then they will notice it and say, this is amazing, despite the fact that it had zero press. But it also means that sometimes you get a book that somebody on the judges absolutely adores, even though everyone else thinks it's a complete nonsense. And and it gets on because one person's prepared to fight for it hard enough to the point where everyone else goes, oh, God, we just want to get out and get to the bar now. So I read, I mentioned last episode that I read the first Becky Chambers novel on a beach on my honeymoon. And the reason I did that was because we went to Waterstones prior to the honeymoon to get beach reading. And there was a Table of Clark Award nominees. And it was one of the books that was nominated for the Clark that year. So that's how I came across, mainly because it had been nominated for the Clark and had a good title. I mean, I suspect me and Liz slightly differ uh, in which side of the nonsense, not nonsense divide (laughs) that we think that book falls on. Well, that's and this is a reason why we might want to discuss the Clarks, because my perception is that Liz and I have mostly very different tastes in science fiction novels. So. There, there is a very real risk, though, that we read them all and go, uh, yep, let's go for the Arcadia Martin again, please. So. We can just copy and paste the bit from episode uh, 62 where we discuss the Martin and just drop it in to whatever episode we do for the Clark and we don't have to talk about it again, right? No one will notice. Speaking about backshadowing, David Grigg, who does the Two Chairman podcast, also does a newsletter called Through the Biblioscope. And he discussed the um, books 
the, the finalist for the Hugos this week. And for the Martine, he said, oh, this is the one I haven't read because I hadn't read the previous one and I didn't have time to read both of them and didn't fancy it. And then he goes on to talk about the other novels in a way that makes me think that he's likely to like the Martine a whole lot. And I have commented to him to say so, because uh, otherwise his, his ranking was not dissimilar to ours. And then we've been foreshadowing it. We've been building up to it. You've known about it for a full two weeks. But let's discuss the very exciting news about the conversation venue. Woo! Take it away, Alison. Yes, so in the patch of time today that I might have been preparing for the podcast, I was busy announcing Conversation, which is next year's EasterCon, which I am on the committee of as a site, which is the Hilton Birmingham Metropole. Um, we were last there for In Nominate in 2017, and we were previously there for Beckon 87. So that was a little while ago. It's much improved since then, and I believe it is somewhat improved since In Nominate. We've actually been there at least once or twice between that as well. It is a very large, very well-appointed hotel, extremely close to a railway station and by a lake. And it is properly accessible and has all of the function space and all of the other facilities that we need. And we are very excited to be using it. Um, we'll be opening hotel bookings quite shortly. I don't know whether that will have happened or not by the time the episode comes out. So I don't want to say, um, but quite soon. Um, if you haven't joined, we will also be um, increasing our membership rates quite soon. And again, I don't know whether that will have happened before or after this episode comes out. So, um, But if it hasn't, then you just don't have long now. You should definitely get on and join the convention if you're planning to come because we're going to put the rates up. It was also the site of Illustrious in 2011. Yeah, that's right. Illustrious was the other place. Because I was like, I've been there twice. I know I have. And I know I didn't go in 1987 for reasons. So <laughs> there must have been one in between. <laughs> for reasons we're not going to talk about. Yeah. But Caroline was on the committee of that one. So she's chairing this one and she was on the committee of that one. So it's kind of a return mm. to a site that she's very familiar with. And although it's changed in some ways, there are some other ways in which it's just the same. In 2017, which was in Nominate, they had Easter eggs in the foyer. And conversation guest of honour, Neil Harrison, won the bid at the Fan Fund auction to be able to pick his Easter egg and eat it. And he chose a very beautiful egg, which was actually a tree with lots and lots of eggs. And I have very fond memories of him basically having massive analysis paralysis as to which of these beautiful Easter eggs he should take uh, for his winning bid. And it was very good. So I'm hoping... I mean, all I'm saying is drop lots of hints because it's, it's good to auction Easter eggs in the foyer off for the Frankfurt auctions. True fact. So I have, I have fond Neil Harrison-based memories of that hotel. I, I have quite a lot of fond memories of that hotel. I have often stayed at one of the multiple cheaper hotels off-site. Sorry, conventions. And I have quite fond memories of either like staggering back through the car park at 2am or, in one case, the hotel van driving us back to the hotel. Which is very nice of them. I mean, I am going to say, as I would do, like all Easter cons, we have a room block that we need to fill and we have a food and drink target, food and beverage target that we need to achieve. But um, so we prefer people not to not to go and book elsewhere. But, you know, it's if you need to, there are plenty of other options in the area at lower rates indeed, as Liz says. I don't think, I think the only times I've ever not stayed in the con hotel 
at times when the Con Hotel was too small to stay in. So like Bradford, I remember one of those I didn't. And Harrogate, I didn't. But the only other time is, I think, Satellite 4, which is the 2014 one. I stayed in the Campanile instead of the Con Hotel, and I regretted every single minute of it. Uh, so, you know, I'm a bougie boy, and I require my breakfasts. A bougie. I quite often stay in the nearest Premier Inn, which usually do pretty good breakfasts. Premier Inn breakfast is not bad. The Wilcon Hotel doesn't come with breakfast, by the way, John. I'm just mentioning that now before you get your hopes up. For Shycon? Oh, no, I knew this. American hotels very often don't, but that's fine because I do love extremely cheap diners. Yeah, because American breakfasts are amazing. So, you know, getting a good breakfast near the hotel is not going to be difficult, I wouldn't have thought. Oh, you need Southeast Asian breakfast buffets. I do need that. I didn't know I needed it, but I do need it. Can I get those in Chicago? Probably not, no. When Liz runs the Bangkok Worldcon... <laughs> sorry, Globecon. That's a deep cut for the listeners. I went to San Francisco in 1993. Hispania's first convention. And we stayed at the ANA. ANA is, is the Japanese airline. It had uh, what I think is probably a Southeast Asian hotel breakfast buffet, and it was fantastic. Yeah, they, they basically try and cater to people who would like a sort of Western-style breakfast of, you know, pancakes and waffles and fruit. And also usually there's like an egg station that will make you whatever type of eggs you like. Plus, there'll be like noodles and curry and egg fried rice for people who like a more savoury breakfast. And on one memorable breakfast buffet, there was ice cream. Nice. I like breakfasts. Egg stations are the dream. If you're at a breakfast with an egg station, you know that's an excellent breakfast. Yeah, this, the, the Plotter.com that was in Leicester had an egg station at the Holiday Inn in Leicester. That was very good. Nice. Oh, the Holiday Inn in Leicester. I know it well. That's a very good. It had a very, very good breakfast. That was by far the best thing about the, um, well, probably about the whole convention, actually, but certainly about the hotel. My favourite breakfast in the country is located in Leicester in a small bar called Bardos Hermanos. And they do a phenomenal full English breakfast and also a very good kedgeri. So that is very conflicting. So where are we thinking of holding punctuation, the in-person punctuation then? <laughs> Whoever's got the best breakfast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I mean, I'd be well up for holding that in Leicester. There are good hotels there. I like that city a lot anyway. And it's got the Space Centre. So Leicester's a pretty good place to hold a convention. Um, Not an Eastercon, doesn't have the site, apart from the Hinkley. Let's not talk about the Hinkley. Hinkley isn't Leicester. It's quite close. Hinkley's a terrible town. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of in the same way that um, Crawley isn't London. Hinkley is not Leicester. I mean, I think it's in the same way that Croydon is actually London. Yeah, that's why I didn't say Croydon. Or or Heathrow. (laughs) Crawley is overflow Croydon, and Hinkley is overflow Leicester. Crawley's quite nice, actually. Well, okay, there used to be a very good folk festival in Crawley. That's what I mean. Those are different things. There's a great beer festival in Peterborough. You'd never hear me arguing Peterborough was nice. I would say that the Hilton Birmingham Metropole has a solid breakfast. First-class breakfast. It does. It really does. And they never make you feel like, because the 2011 Birmingham convention was obviously between the second and third O-cons, and the contrast in the breakfast like was, was very noticeable, because they had like black and white pudding, and they were friendly to you and smiled. And none of these things were true of the O-con hotels. The Radisson non-Euclidean. Shall we do some plugs? Plugs. Don't often do plugs. Plugs, plugs, plugs. 
Are we doing plugs? We've got time to do plugs. What are we plugging? Could do plugs. Uh, Alison has done fan writing. Oh. I can't remember what it was. She can't remember what it was. Cannot remember. What fan writing did I do, guys? You did one for Galactic Journey. Oh, I was going to plug Galactic Journey. Yeah, but in fact, I'll just do that as part of the thing I've actually put in here, which is I wanted to do a quick plug for the Shycon Fringe, which is going on at the moment and is a series of discussions, some of which are local in Chicago. So if you're in Chicago, do go along to them and some of which are online. And some of those are being run by Glasgow in 2024, which is a bid for the 2024 Worldcon. Um, by the time this comes out, you will be too late to support Glasgow in 2024. So we, I probably should have plugged that last time. I'll go back and insert it into our episode before last. Um, but meanwhile, there's a bunch of um, events going on under the Fringe banner. And I think they weren't quite have finished by the time we get this out. But I did one on Best Fanzine when I paid attention to and had a good look at all the best fanzine finalists and concluded that I quite liked all of them and had some nice things to say about them, all of them. And so thank you to everyone who came along to that and everyone else read the best fanzines. Go and look at what they've put in the Hugo Vertipack, which is a great place to start. And what you'll find is that they are all very different, but also all very interesting and um, well worth your Hugo vote. This is linked to that previous plug to go and Vote for fan things in the Hugo, vote for the fanzines because they're jolly interesting. Also, as part of that, I had to declare an interest because I have now become a columnist on one of those finalists, which is Galactic Journey, which is a fanzine that is experiencing the world through the eyes of a traveller 55 years ago, exactly, day by day. And so every couple of days, it does an article in time um, about what's going on in science fiction and fantasy and fandom and culture in that time and it's a very interesting high concept thing that I think everybody should be paying attention to. Um, they also have a series of TV nights where they watch they watch Star Trek, um, which I don't go to because it was not broadcast in the United Kingdom in 1967, <laughs> but they also watched the first global TV broadcast together and that was quite good fun. Wait, Alison, are you a purist? And so you're only writing about things that you personally could have experienced in the UK 55 years ago. So no, no Star Trek. I'm obviously I'm blurring the edges around this for all sorts of reasons. I, I think one criticism of Galactic Journey is that it keeps in time, but it it do, approaches things with the perspective of people in, in the 2020s, though not the actual knowledge of individual events. Yeah. Yeah. I'm mostly just making a joke. There's an argument, I suppose, that if it wasn't doing that, you could just read fanzines from 1969 and that would be simpler. So I, I do think part of the interesting thing is the dramatic irony of it, almost, right? Like the fact that you know what will happen and so you can play with that a little bit is good. It's a really interesting project, generally speaking. They notice things that fans who were actually writing in 1967 don't notice, partly because you don't notice the sea when you're swimming in it, but partly because the fans in 1967 were mostly coming from one perspective and there were a lot of other things going on in the world that were not necessarily from that perspective that are interesting and were interesting at the time if you'd known about them, which you didn't. Shall we do picks? Why not? 
So my pick is a slightly unusual one, even for me having previously picked a rumba. Mine is a video called The Great Potato War. So you need a bit of backstory here, which is there was a Minecraft YouTuber by the name of Technoblade, who I had never come across until a couple of weeks ago when he died tragically early from lymphoma and um, the internet basically started posting a load of links in tribute to him. And so I started watching them. He was a, he'd was he been a Minecraft YouTuber for, I think, 10 years. You know, he started when he was only 13 or something and built this huge fan following. And The Great Potato War, I think, is the funniest one I've watched. It is the story of a man who, in, in a Minecraft world, attempts to become the number one potato farmer in the world. And I just recommend you watch it. It's 20 minutes. It's pretty funny. And there's two sequels to it where the man he beats to the spot of number one potato farmer starts to get his revenge on him for trying to beat him to the to the, the pinnacle of potato collection. And can you make your Minecraft farm get you 1.5 million potatoes per day and so on? So yeah, it's pretty funny. It's something I would never have come across, unfortunately, apart from people started posting uh, the videos after his kind of tribute and obituary started going around as well. And it makes me a bit sad that I never saw any of these videos when he was around to make some more. So I recommend, yeah, give it 20 minutes of your time. I shall do that. My my younger child, who is only a little bit older than, only a little bit younger than Technoblade, was extremely upset about his death, which was was an enormous shock to the community. And we had to have a long conversation about the way it is possible to be, to grieve for somebody that you've never met and only know over the internet from the things that they've done. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the podcasters who runs my, well, my, probably my favorite podcast, again, died tragically young, you know, literally the day after he'd made a podcast. And it was, it was just strange with this community who you've never met the person, but at this point I'd listened to kind of hundreds of hours of his podcasting. So you felt like you have a connection to him in a way that you, you don't really, because he had friends and family and you were people he'd never met. But you did all kind of come together and, and grieve for this person you had a very kind of parasocial relationship with. Yeah. And so, so this kind of reminds me of that in a completely different community. I haven't had that. The closest I've had is like when people like Terry Pratchett or Humphrey Littleton have gone and you feel like you know them even though you didn't. But, but yeah, it is, it's tricky, right? Because you don't know them, but you're still very, very sad about it. And I say like Technoblade and his community have raised, they raised over half a million dollars for Lymphoma Research. So Crikey. Yeah, they've done pretty well. That is, that is good going. Yeah. For a good cause. Mm-hmm. My pick is in the vein of picking things that are up to date and relevant and down with the kids. I'm going to pick a 20 year old video game, a little, a little number you may have heard of called Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Now, this is a relatively obscure game that hasn't had much of an impact on Star Wars fandom. So allow me to explain. <laughs> This is a game by uh, Bioware, and it's a big old RPG, and you can get it for almost every platform you could possibly imagine. It's like Doom. I believe it's been installed on a pregnancy test. Yeah, uh, but I have it for iPad, and I think I also have it for computer for, for on Steam. But basically, I've discovered that I can connect my PlayStation 4 controller to my iPad, and then I can play KOTOR for long train journeys and i recently had a trip to coventry and a trip to peterborough and so i played a lot of nice little republic and it's quite good listeners i've discovered this and i'm telling you and this is the first you're hearing about it i have a query what's the query can you get it for the m1 mac uh yeah you get it for apple silicon Macs? 
yeah, I think so. I think I could play it on my computer. I don't particularly want to. Because most, most Steam games don't play on Apple Silicon Macs in a, very, in a considerably annoyance thing, even if they do on. I mean, if you wanted to play games, you probably shouldn't have bought an M1 Mac. I don't really like playing games on computers, if I'm honest. I like playing games mostly with controllers, but also I like playing games on platforms where you install the game and it works. And my experience of playing PC games when I was a kid is that the PC is not the platform you want if that is what you are aiming at. I quite like my PlayStation 5 and I quite like my Nintendo Switch. I quite like my iPad and they let me play between them a lot of games. And you attach a controller to the iPad to play this sort of game? Yes. How? Which controller are you attaching? I'm attaching a PlayStation 4 DualShock 4 wireless controller, which is red. Oh, and it, it just, what, it just syncs with your iPad? Apple have built in to their operating systems support for the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One, Xbox, whatever the current one is, and Nintendo Switch controllers, and they're all Bluetooth controllers, so you just connect them and they just recognize automatically uh the really cool thing is that if you connect the switch joy cons they're clever enough to know when you're using them in single joy con or whether you're using them connected and the, the the ipad can just like work out what you're doing and do it all magically like the switch would so it's quite a good implementation but because i had a spare ps4 controller from when i sold my ps4 to allison i used that as my like controller for my ipad and my mac and I've been playing KOTOR with that. It is better than using the touchscreen. I think the touchscreen controls are all right. But like, I think using a controller is better. But yeah, KOTOR is good. Yeah, but I, uh, my eyes lit up at the idea of using Joy-Cons because Joy-Cons are tiny. So in terms of carting them around, it's not like carting a bloody controller around, is it? Yeah, I mean, Joy-Cons do give me hand cramp, which is why I've bought a Switch Pro controller. Because there's a really interesting article somewhere on the internet about how Nintendo designs for child hands and uh, Sony designs for adult male hands. An Xbox designed for giant hands. A, my hands are smaller than you think they are. And <laughs> Sue drew me, Sue drew me last week with little stubby hands. And I was like, Sue, I've got little stubby hands in this picture. And then I looked at my fingers and I was like, I was probably all right, really. But I will say, I want to quickly say something about the law of the Night Solar Republic. Oh, it's a fantastic game. The game is basically a D20-based role-playing game running in a video game, which is never something I really got behind because the great benefit of paper RPGs is that you can let your imagination run wild. But I wouldn't argue that the simulation aspect is like as good as a video game can simulate things necessarily. But what this does also mean is that when you become a Jedi, it's not really a spoiler to say you become a Jedi because, of course, you become a Jedi. You have to choose one of three Jedi classes and they're very rigorously defined and you fall into one of them. And it's like, what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. And that bled through into a lot of the expanded universe media because it was like there are these three types of Jedi and that is how it works. And it's like one of the great things about them having moved away from the expanded universe is that this model of how the force works has gone away and that is probably better. So yeah, I picked my class while rolling my eyes into the back of my head. But I have a lightsaber now, and I think it's yellow. Might be blue. I can't remember. It's a colour. Kotal's a pretty good game. Yeah. Just very quickly, Star Wars Knights of the Republic is indeed uh, optimised for M1 Max. The current Star Wars games that are, are X-Wing, TIE Fighter, Knights of the Republic, Knights of the Republic 2, and Rebel Assault 1 and 2. The others I have are not. But But now I... 
now I know I can play it straightforwardly on my iPad. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I still haven't bought an iPad. And now I'm like, oh, I could buy an iPad and play Knights of the Republic on it with my PlayStation controller. So it's even more likely I will get an iPad. Yay. Um, so we are recording early, listeners. You may not have noticed. So I am going to tell you about um, an exhibition that I'll go to in the future because I'm going to it tomorrow. If we were recording it at our normal time, I would have gone to it and I would have been able to have it as a pick. But I'm going to it tomorrow. It is at the Haywood Gallery, which is the gallery bit of the South Bank Centre in London. Um, And this is called In the Black Fantastic. And the blurb for it is an exhibition of 11 contemporary artists from the African diaspora who draw on science fiction, myth and Afrofuturism to question our knowledge of the world. And it has had rave reviews with the Evening Standard saying there is unlikely to be a better show this year. Um, the Observer saying a magnificent experience, spectacular from first to last. Several of my friends have seen it and raved about it. And then just lots of five-star reviews. And I am going to it tomorrow with Farah and um, some other people. And I'm very much looking forward to it um but i haven't actually seen it yet but i'm going to pick it anyway so that you can get on and get to it before it closes um it runs till the 18th of september and it's 13 pounds 50 and that's probably concessions because this episode doesn't come out for two weeks uh obviously alison will be taking a microphone with her and recording some live thoughts which i will drop in now It will be practice for our, you know, whatever guerrilla recording we decide to do at Shycon and or when John is making lightsabers. Oh, Cabaret, the gorilla's amazing. I will just say, I don't understand what that means. I, well, that wasn't what I was going to say, but you just said. <laughs> okay, so Cabaret has a gorilla in it, for people who don't know. And this particular production of the gorilla has gone really into it. Um with with a very realistic gorilla suit and people doing and a person doing generally very reali- realistic gorilla movements, whereas normally Ooh. it's obviously a person in a gorilla suit. Nice. Spoiler for Cabaret, which I can't really have as my pick because Cabaret's not science fiction. I would I would really like to go and see it though. It looks great. The current the current production of Cabaret is unbelievably good and. And it's currently the guy from Hawkeye, right? Yes, Fraffy is the MC and Amy Lennox is the current Sally Bowles and it's so good. When you say the guy from Hawkeye, I think Jeremy Renner and I don't think you mean Jeremy Renner. Um, So it's the, I can't remember his character's name, but the deaf, he's the, the one from the gang who is the deaf girl's friend from birth. Oh, okay, okay, cool. I like that guy. Anyway. That was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Probably another another stream deck press, John. <laughs> I'm going to press the back on track button and we're going to get back on track. Nailing it. We have a back on track button. Wait. <laughs> yeah. That would be really useful. How the fuck does that work? <laughs> yeah, because I need to know where I need to know where we got back on track 
if there's a huge digression, I need a button that tells me where the end of the digression was. I mean, in this case, it hasn't worked because it has triggered another digression. Oh, I see. So it's not a button that gets us back on track. Like, you know, it's... <laughs> oh, Liz, if I could have a button that got you back on track, <laughs> I mean, like, 100% I would. The podcast recordings would be much shorter. God, if you have got a button that'll get me back on track, I could really, really use it in my daily life regularly. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.